Welcome to Bibliophiles, a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Here on the show, we attempt to find universal ideas and stories all around us, whether old or new, in every medium and in any genre. We hope to participate in a great conversation alongside our favorite authors and artists across the ages about the stuff of life, man's frailty and glory, his muck and his marvel, his faith and his doubt. In this season, the Center for Lit crew goes to the movies. We're looking at what happens when our favorite books are adapted for the big screen, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Over the course of 10 episodes, we'll be discussing the similarities and differences between the two mediums and what distinguishes a successful adaptation from a real stinker. So grab some popcorn and enjoy the show. Hello, friends. Welcome back. It's another episode of Bibliophiles. And today we are going to, in similar fashion to last episode's icebreaker question, dive into the world of animated films, which I think is really fun. Don't have another icebreaker related to that topic. <laughs> just <can't laughs> so, dive in. So did I think just, the ice, did you just the breaking of the ice today, yep. <laughs> the breaking of the ice today is me falling through it. <laughs> and giving you all something to chuckle at. Now, here funny. I am, struggling around in the icy water. <laughs> Somebody throw him a branch. With your body. Having broken the ice <laughs> with my own ever-spreading. All right. Well, um, Mom, is, Mom, you're on the hot seat today. I'm in the hot seat. You are. Yeah, this was your, this was your idea for, for an episode. And it came from a prompt of mine, which was, choose a film adaptation that was, in your estimation, a huge miss. Is that correct? It is correct. What is the film? Well, the film is uh, The Tale of Despero. It, it was originally a story written by Kate DiCamillo. I think that's how you say her name. And it, the, the novel itself, the children's, it's a children's story. Fantastic. The film, on the other hand, not, not so, so much. Not so fantastic? Not so much. Yeah. Okay, it surprised me when you told me that this was terrible. I'm going to make a clean breast of it here. I have not seen this movie, nor did I watch it before preparing to hold forth on it for an hour. Nor will you want to after our conversation today. So, But I did look it up, and this cast is astonishing. I'm going to read this cast, cast to you. Yes. Matthew Broderick, Emma Watson, Robbie Coltrane, Dustin Hoffman, Richard Jenkins, Kevin Klein, Frank Langella, William H. Macy, Whoa. James Nesbitt, Tony Hale, for Pete's sake, Tony Hale, voices one of the characters in this movie, Christopher Lloyd, Tracy Ullman, Siren Hines, and Stanley Tucci. Goodness I give gracious. You Stanley freaking Tucci. I mean, how, how could a movie with this cast be bad? I know. You forgot Sigourney Weaver. Did you? Yeah. Oh, that's Sigourney right. She narrates. Yeah, Sigourney Weaver narrates. Yeah. So the, the, it's got some incredible voice talent. The movie's early director was Sidney Chimay. I think that's how you say his name. He he uh, was replaced as the movie went on, but the adaptation w- it was very very much lacking. Okay, lacking how? Well, let's just say in the voice of Despero's mother, the movie was such the disappointment. <laughs> That's okay. how she described you Despero when he was born. <laughs> Poor little Despero. He's this tiny little rent of the litter, the only one that survives from his, his mother's uh, labors. And she's so disappointed. And I think that that must be how Kate DiCamillo felt about this film. I, frankly, if I were her, I would have been terribly disappointed Despero's screenplay writer was Gary Ross, 
And I think what he did is he strip mined DeCamelo's novel. Okay, what do you mean? You And this is a term that many long, long listeners to Bibliophiles will know already. But what do you, what do you mean by strip mined? That may not be a colloquialism broadly accepted among It know, might others. be a missyism, actually. I only know that from your table. You may have invented it. Yeah. I don't think I... Well, I don't remember where it came from. That might have come from from uh, Tracy McKenzie. He talks about strip mining as well, doesn't he, Adam? Uh, strip mining history. Yeah, yeah, I think he talks about strip mining history. Anyway, um, when I talk about it, when I use the term, I'm I'm talking about borrowing characters and setting, at least in this application. Uh, he borrowed characters and setting to tell a different story of his own. A relatively, Entirely unrelated? Um, kind of. Marginally yeah. related. Marginally related. And his story wasn't nearly as original as Kate DiCamillo's uh, story was. No, I agree. Having seen, uh, both read the book and seen the movie, I have the same quarrel, Mom. I thought that one of the things that I took away from the book was its luminous quality. It was yes. so vibrant in its contrast of light and dark, both in setting, quite literally, in the atmosphere of the settings that she creates, and in theme. And I thought that the movie only maintained the atmosphere. It stole that the light and dark elements and incorporated them into the animation. The light was pretty in that movie, but it absolutely missed the thematic point. It didn't use that to any purpose. It also muted the darkness a lot. And uh, you're absolutely right. The light and the darkness is everything in her novel. Just to, to give you a quick summary of the book, and spoiler alert to those of you who haven't read it, maybe you want to turn this off and listen to this later, um, because <laughs> I'm going to I'm gonna be pretty, pretty replete in my description here. <laughs> so the original novel uses, as Megan said, really innovative characters in order to offer a, a creative homage to the medieval fairy tale. As I mentioned before, she's got this protagonist who's a tiny run-to-the-litter mouse, Despero Tilling. And his mother, as I mentioned, rejects him in disappointment. He isn't like other mice. For one thing, he doesn't scurry. He's too distracted by the light beams and his own imagination. So when he's presented, for example, with a book, he doesn't chew. He reads. All the other mice climb up on the, the table in the library and they chew through books, but he actually reads them. His thought, why would anybody fill their bellies with the pages of a fairy tale when they could actually fill their minds with their beauteous light? Despero consumes, dare I say, he inhales stories of courageous knights and beautiful princesses. And when he meets the real princess in the castle, the princess P, he is completely taken with her beauty. He falls in love. And meanwhile, this unconventional little fellow breaks all of the rules of his people and lands himself miserably in the clink. Okay, so the other mice are not in approval of Despero's No, 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 no. They do not like this. I mean, he's so other. They don't understand him. He stands in the middle of an open room, gazing up at the light beams as they play on the dust motes. And all the other mice are are scurrying and scuttling for cover, you know? saying, hurry up, why aren't you scurrying, you know? And that's not the only thing he does. He exposes himself to human beings, and mice should never do that. So he, he literally breaks all of the rules of the tribe, and he, as a result, is exiled to the dungeons, okay? In my head, mice kind of already live in the dungeons. 
Well, this not in this particular story. There's, no, there's an entire kind of upstairs, upstairs downstairs idea in this story yes. as well. Little Downton, which is cool. Downton. Yeah, a little Downton, Downton, Downton going on. Yeah, Downton okay. of the rodents. Okay. You know what I mean? <laughs> right on, Downton for the rodent okay. community. I'm tracking. So he tracking. ends up downstairs, and while he's there, he meets two more unconventional characters. The first is this embittered rat by the name of Roscuro. Uh, his name comes from Kai Roscuro, which means light and shadow, right? Awesome. Um, yeah. Roscuro is, is a rat who had accidentally caused the death of Princess P's mother, the queen, when he had gone upstairs in pursuit of light and had been enticed by the aroma of soup and fallen in to her bowl. <laughs> she is so surprised she, she has dies a heart of attack. Fright. Yeah, she dies of she fright dies because of fright. a rat falls into her soup. It's just soup, so yeah. fanciful. Soup is a key element here. Soup, soup is a key is element. Crucial. And that doesn't go well for him, as you might imagine. And he's pretty bitter by the whole situation. He's been rejected and he doesn't like it. So he is bent on revenge. The second unconventional character, apart from Despero, of course, is this Forsaken and abused kitchen girl by the name of young Miggery Sow. Miggery Sow. I mean, that's a name. Miggery like Sow. What a name, right? Would love. It's yeah. awesome. But she is a child who was very treacherously sold for a slave by her callous father. He sells her for, let's see, I think it's a hen and some cigarettes and a red tablecloth that he'd taken a shine to. So the narrative Not a threads, subtle man, her father. Not a subtle man, no. Um, <laughs> but in, it, but it's very dark in the story, and DeCamelo doesn't actually wince at the darkness. She tells it straight on. She confronts the darkness, and he's a really dark character. And I mean, to sell a child for some cigarettes and and a hen and and a pretty piece of cloth. What a despicable thing to do. And the result is she, the, the guy he sells her to that she calls uncle is very abusive. He uses her like a slave and he beats her on the ear so that she goes deaf. She develops cauliflower ear like a, like wrestlers, right? And she goes completely stone cold deaf in, in one of her ears. She, she hears very badly out of the other one. So anyway, that's Migri Sal. The narrative threads of these characters. So we've got Despero, Roscuro, the rat. And Miggery Sal, all of these narrative threads kind of come together. They converge in the depths of the castle dungeon, which DeCamelo depicts as this maze of darkness and forsakenness and want. This place where, the place where bitterness grows. Okay. So there they are deep in the darkness in the heart of the castle. And together, these characters kind of upend all of the broad caricatures of good and evil and call into question what is generally in a fairy tale, a really bold line on reality. There's the good and there's the evil and there's nothing in between, right? But DeCamelo suggests instead that life is full of this Kairoscuro, this light and shadow, the interplay between the two. And it's not quite so razor sharp edged, right? She really humanizes her character's struggles and as a result makes them very relatable and their redemption very hopeful. Little Despero champions through his little narrative what the theologian Robert Capon calls the little, the least, and the lost. He discovers that there is a, that, that Roscuro has enticed Miggery Sow to kidnap the princess, convincing Sow that she can be princess if she helps they him. Just swap places. Yeah. 
Yep. If, if she helps him get rid of the princess and lead her down into the heart of the dungeon, that she can be princess. And she's just dull enough <laughs> to believe him, right? Despero gets wind of this and he realizes that there's nobody that's going to rescue the princess but him. He's got to do it. So he rescues the princess and he ennobles the oppressed from his unlikely position of feebleness and weakness and fright, right? He's a mouse after all. He's scared of everything. Well, and a small mouse at that. A very small mouse, the run to the litter mouse, mouse, right? Yeah. But but he has been inspired. He's got this heroic vision as a result of reading these fairy tales and he's having dreams of knights, but when when the um when their armor's lifted, there's nothing inside, right? Maybe he's the knight that's supposed to go inside. Maybe he's the one that's called to rescue the princess. And charged by all of these visions of the fairy tales that he's read and by a heart that is really warmed and loves the the princess P, he decides he's going to rescue her. It's a kind of chivalric love story. Chivalric in that it's it's requited but not romantic love, right? Because a mouse can't marry a princess and all of that. It, it falls apart a little bit. Well, but- it does. Actually, <laughs> to pause you just for a second, I think that one of the most powerful things that Kate DiCamillo does with all these elements that you're mentioning is she weaves together, she's basically picturing an abstract theme for us. She says, hmm. chivalry, the knight's code, is ridiculous. There is an element of this love that's supposed to be unrequited it doesn't go anywhere what in the world is it for this is laughable and here you've got despero who is a mouse loving a human princess and it's the ridiculous on display and all of his mouse brethren laugh at him and call him such you know you are a ridiculous fool and he is the quintessential little hero but it's i don't know the the picture book is working at its best in quite literally making the abstract tangible you know Mm, yeah i agree that's a great point yep I, I think that's absolutely true. So Despero's story arc kind of goes that direction. The shadowy villains that he fights, as because DeCamelo sheds light on their origin stories, she creates this kind of empathy in the reader for their suffering. And she builds a bridge to redeem them. There's, there's a kind of happily ever after. I don't want to give the entire story away, but she builds a happily ever after and brings a kind of a justice to these multifaceted characters by working repentance, a kind of real repentance into their hearts through graceful, unmerited, unexpected mercy and forgiveness. Which is just as dramatic as the darkness that you described. And I'm thinking particularly of her naming conventions, which are just delightful all the way to the end. But there's a really evil villainous rat named Botticelli Remorso. Yeah. And he (laughs) is, I mean, he is accidentally, he brings about one of the climactic moments and resolutions of the story. And in his name is remorse, this element, beginning element of repentance. You know, it's not repentance in and of itself, but it has a hand in it. And Botticelli Remorso, this artistic rendering of a feeling of remorse is crucial to the turning point of the story. So beautiful. That's great. And by the end of the story, the shadowy outcasts are through this redemptive mercy through forgiveness that works on them. They're kind of brought into the light and they, they're brought upstairs and they become a company of the redeemed broken. Uh, the story actually ends with a table fellowship scene. They're all sitting around 
uh, enjoying Eating a soup. kettle of warming soup together. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's soup. really beautiful. Which is apparently Keith really in. important to Kate. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's a it's a trope in the story because. Once, once the queen has died eating her soup because of the, the rat rescuer dropping into it, the king decides that soup is banned. And so no soup for you, kingdom. Ah, <laughs> nice. I see. So yeah, I <laughs> kind see. of a trope in the story. Okay. All right, so, so that's, that's great. That's story. wonderful, wonderful background and context. Let's dive into the movie version. Yeah. So it's probably not necessary to have a catalog of all of the ways that the plot differs, but maybe, maybe there are a couple of moments that are changed in a way that, that, helps you talk about how these narratives are fundamentally Well, there definitely, there are several moments. And the first is this, the movie is really colorful and beautiful in its animation. The artistry is, is really lovely, as Megan mentioned, but it really does lack most fundamentally the sparkle of DeCamelo's prose. She is in the story itself. I was rereading it to prepare for today's conversation. And she's just a master of language. She uses verbal ambiguities to kind of shade the story's characters and their, and their actions. She uses just the right amount of big words. For example, um, when she tells Migory Sow's story and when she tells Despero's story, she uses the word perfidy. Do you know what perfidy means? It's <laughs> a great word. What's perfidy? Well, why don't you give us the definition? <laughs> I could Perfidy stumble around like, and then you would go, not quite. And then you would give me the definition. Well, so it's, it's, it's like treachery, right? It's traitorous behavior. Perfidy. Right. And she introduces words like that to her readers and kind of asides narrative intrusions, right? Where she develops, she develops a, a relationship with the reader as though she were in the room with them and she has their ear, you know? Uh, Which of the characters is described as perfidious? Well, the perfidious characters are, are, yep, it's uh, Lester Despero. Um, Despero's father, for those of you wondering. Yep, his father and his brother, right? Those two are both uh, perfidious. And then also Migrisau's father is perfidious, right? So the uh, traitors, the ones who the offer traitors. up their children. Yes. Yeah. The ones, and she describes their, their, their traitorous behaviors, their disloyalty in such a way that you come away thinking, what father could ever do such a thing to their daughter? What father could ever forsake his son like this? Mm -hmm. So that there's a, a reason for bitterness to grow so that she can really have a conversation about bitterness as not growing in a vacuum, but coming as a result of some real wrong that's done to an individual. Something truly unforgivable has happened here, right? And that's necessary in order for her story to move forward because unless there was a real wrong done, well, then mercy and forgiveness uh, lose their teeth, Don't have right? Any, yeah, there's no bite to them. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. But anyway, I was talking about her language. In DeCamelo's language, her prose is lovely. The question is, is it possible to transfer that kind of rich language and imagery, the imagery she creates with language, onto a screen without flattening it to just basic plot elements. Well, the, one of the ways you try and pull it off is that you have voiceover narration. And there was right. voiceover narration, yeah. but it simply couldn't hold up to her sparkly prose. I have a question. Given that we've already talked about To Kill a Mockingbird here in our podcast, which we have, you know, touted as a really good example of a novel turned into a movie, there's all kinds of... What do you call it when the, the guy's narrating narration, I guess, over the top of scenes? And we said it worked really well because it was drawn directly from the text. Was this narration drawn from the text? 
Well, and you, I mean, can I just add to that question yeah. for a second? In To Kill a Mockingbird, you said that you made this complaint as well there. Yeah. So, but you also said it was a good adaptation. So, so what brings What's the it to your attention the here? Yeah. Yeah. That's um, a good question. Maybe it's the excerpts themselves. Because yes, they did have poorly. portions <laughs> where Sigourney Weaver was reading portions of the text, but they didn't seem to retain parts of the text that were the sparkliest, in my opinion. Hmm. And it, and the result is that they did kind of flatten it. Meanwhile, the movie features Despero, this little mouse with the penchant for books that we mentioned, but it totally changes his character and motivation. In the movie, instead of being small and fearful, and distracted from his little mousy life and duties by this romantic imagination, the director portrays him as a spunky runt of the litter who uh-huh. like, loves to leap over mouse traps and tempt fate, right? Not scared. That's a huge change. Ooh, a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. This change basically removes a portion of the story conflict and really deflates Despero's original character arc, in my opinion. Well, and if he manages to save the Princess P, then it's down to his own courage rather than some kind of mercy in and of itself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it actually changes the definition of courage, right? Courage is not something born out of fear, but it's um, it's a personality type, right? I'm spunky. He was um, born courageous. Born courageous. And it, as a result of changing these... It seems like a little change, but the result of changing the that character quality in Despero from fearful and small and little and lost and least to spunky and, you know, kind of challenging the world uh, by personality, the themes change. You mm-hmm. see? Yeah. The yeah. themes are very attached to the underlying conflict. You change that conflict. You change your story's subject matter and themes. Instead of highlighting themes like self-sacrificial love and courage in the face of fear, suddenly we've got a movie that majors in conquest and bravado in the same way. Boy, vein. that's a shame. Well, that's I think shame. it really was. It it it, it kind of drained the life out of the movie, in my opinion. And in the same way, the film makes a lot of this mouse community that Megan mentioned is upstairs, downstairs. I think that's a really good description of it. <laughs> that's pretty funny. Um, the, the mouse community upstairs exiles Despero because he won't conform, right? He's, he's a failure where conformity is concerned. But again, makes this the movie makes this tragic departure from the storyline, the original storyline. Uh, and they take this issue of nonconformity and rather than letting it just create an increased pathos for the main character, they make it the leading trope in the story. And mm-hmm. it becomes like this guiding, politically correct, thematic thread. Right? Now it's it's about the nonconformist, and he's a, he's a spunky nonconformist too. And the eventual triumph of the nonconformist. Exactly, exactly. And that's not really. I mean, yes, he was a nonconformist in the story, but not because he was spunky and he was gonna he refuses to conform, but instead because he was born a little different. Just yeah, he's curious and instead he's of curious cowering. and distracted and and you know. Well, and it also it sounds like it comes from and I. I have read the book, although it's been many years, but it, it seems like it comes from weakness in yes, the first place. In the story, right? it does. Yes. Not from strength. That's exactly right. In the story, it's about strength coming out of weakness and life coming out of death instead of those kinds of themes. And instead of themes about hope and resurrection and the power of forgiveness, suddenly with the rewrite for the film, we get the story about being countercultural 
being unconventional, believing in yourself, walking to the beat of, of your own little drummer, you know? Yeah. So anyway, all of those, all of those are real changes in the story that I think do violence to DeCamelo's original vision for the story. In addition to all of these changes, the director Sam Fell and Rob Stephen Hagen changed the story's chronology because in DeCamelo's original story, there's a lot of flashback narration and that allows her to kind of peel back the layers of time to reveal her character's motivations and all of these cause and effect relationships that we've been talking about that shape and humanize the characters. Instead, the movie opts for a straight ahead approach, um, a a chronological approach, a linear approach to the story. And they junk the slower reveal that DeCamelo adopts for her narration. So they lose all of the nuance, all of the layering, and all of the the deeper motivations in the story. They pull a Louisa May Alcott. I got you. They do. They but not to <laughs> not, not to the same effect. Deep tracks whereas, bibliophile. Yeah, whereas the Louisa <laughs> May Alcott, uh, the Greta Gerwig version of her story really did fix what was wrong. Right, right. There was nothing wrong with DeCamelo's narrative. Um right. so she did it right the first time. They wrecked it. She did it right the first time. They literally wrecked it up. Okay? <laughs> Um, that's not all though. But I'm, not, I'm, not, not, done. But I'm not done. I'm not done. done yet. <laughs> and this might be my greatest criticism of all. Think about it. When you make a movie, one of the main things you're dealing with is light because light is a part of projection, right? So as Megan mentioned, they get the light right, but they don't get the darkness right. Hmm. The movie actually alters the setting of the story, making the dungeon, the downstairs part beneath the castle, uh, very different. It, it's they subtly brighten the darkness of the place, and as mm. a result, they remove the mystery and the horror in the dungeon. De Camilo describes the dungeon as this dark maze inhabited by brutal rats, in which even the jailer keeps his way by means of a rope tied around his ankle. Because he can't see. Because he can't see. He can't see his hand in front of his face. Right. The movie instead creates this intricate underground community of rats that look a lot like Nero's degenerate Rome, peopled with this multitude of nice. scourgy varmints, right? Right. And the result is that the place loses its loneliness, it loses its chill, and it loses its sense of exile. Mm-hmm. It sounds like the underground communities in like um, Flushed Away. Flushed yes. Away. Yes, oh, absolutely. Just yeah. just, flushed yeah. Away. Yeah. Just like that. And Sort of, I mean, you think, well, he's making this for children, right? He's got to brighten it up. Except that begs the question because DeCamela was writing this for children. And she did not eliminate the darkness. She knew that without the darkness, the light loses its teeth. Kairoscuro, baby. It does make me wonder if the directors of that movie had spent much time with children. Because as a teacher of elementary students, they really appreciate the dark being very, very dark. And the light being very, very light. That's actually a, a trope in fairy tales from way, way back. Hans Christian Andersen could have told them that, you know? Yes. And not only, not only does it make me wonder whether they'd spend any time with children, it makes me wonder if they'd ever read a fairy tale before. Right. Because they're really dark. Yes. I mean, The Little Mermaid, Violent I hate dark. to break it to you, but ends with The Little Mermaid dying and being turned into sea foam. That's the end of that story. It's very, very bleak. My favorite is the end of... of- Early versions of Cinderella, where the stepsisters are put into a barrel with spikes driven through to the inside and rolled down a rocky hill into a river. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Those are good times. Gratuitous. Gratuitous <laughs> treatments of evil. <laughs> yeah. In the movie rendition, 
the father of Migri Sow is a different personality type. We see him giving Migri Sow away, right? Not because he is heartless and cruel and abusive, but because her mother has died and he can't really afford to keep her. Mm-hmm. Right. It right? softens all the edges. It softens. It softens all the edges. It takes away the brutality of the story. And in eliminating the darkness of the story, the redemption, it, it just is lacking. Well, on it, so on it, you've, you've said a lot about the, the thematic differences between these two stories. And it makes me think of, of differences in culture as well. I mean, it seems to me that looking at movies for kids in general, it's rare to have a story that is really interested in talking about human nature. We want to talk about the noblest parts of being a person, and we want to try and instill in our, as American culture, we want to instill in our children the, the noblest parts of being a person. And we don't like looking at the dark very much. And it's, it's, it's the rare movie that does a good job of doing what Kate DiCamelo did in that novel. So it seems to me like it's sort of emblematic of a, of a cultural approach to children's stories that is troubling. I think so. Um, and, you know, on the one hand, on the one hand, I empathize with, with the directors because we want to protect our children from dark, dark things. Right. But, but not at the expense of them being illuminated by the ideas, the reality of forgiveness and mercy and unmerited grace, right? Well, it may be a little cynical to say this, and, and I may, maybe I'm not, maybe I don't mean it. Maybe it sounds, it is too cynical, but it, it opens up the question in my mind of, uh, people sitting there saying, well, this is a kid's movie. It's going to be for kids. And so we need to be sensitive to kids' sensitivities. And we need to make sure that we are instructing and training kids and giving something to kids that's useful to kids. So let's give them what we give all kids, which is be yourself. You can be whatever you want to be. Um, go your own way. That's and so they, boring. We end up with the same movie that we that we always get yep. for kids. Which is exactly what all of the reviewers said about it. This is a very unoriginal telling of this story. The story itself was extremely original. Even though it harkened back to fairy tales, it told a new fairy tale that had um, reference to old fairy tales because the old fairy tales are rooted in reality, right? In the supernatural realities and the eternal things. And she was partaking in a conversation about those, uh, those realities. And it was universal in that sense, but it was entirely original with her voice and her language and her, her characters. They took her originality and they, well, they flushed it down the drain and they, <laughs> they exchanged it for, for just they a, a leading to cultural dungeon. zeitgeist, you know? Yeah. They annexed it to the dungeon. They exiled it. It was very reductionistic. And as a result, they reduced the power of the film. The story, the film itself teaches morals. Mm-hmm. Um, the story, the story does too. It's not that the story uh, doesn't have moral elements. I, I would say it doesn't teach morals. The book doesn't teach morals. It upholds virtue. Yes. That's different. It's well, not moralistic or didactic. It's not moralistic. Exactly. It's just, it, it makes a clear picture of virtue and vice. And That's I think right. that is what a story should do. But didacticism actually, I don't know, it's a weakness in a lot of ways to a kid's story. I agree. The kid can I tell. I really do agree. Yeah, it, it's, it diminishes a good story. So the story teaches morals, but more than that, it majors in expressing the the darkness of the human heart, the dungeon-like qualities of the human heart, and the ubiquitous need of every man for help. If a way out. Yeah. 
yeah, light. Dad, what were you going to say? I was just going to say, if a movie had attempted that, would it have uh, come across? I mean, again, cynical. Maybe I should just be quiet. Would, <laughs> would the would the producers have said, this will never sell? I mean, is that what, can we guess at the reason why it was so thinned out? That's a lot more difficult of a story to tell. Do you mean, are they making a cultural statement? Parents of children only want to hear this kind of story for their children, and therefore, maybe, we will tell this one? But maybe, maybe when, when the, the point of producing a movie is to have it be profitable, maybe the fact that the movie's for children narrows the field in the mind of the average producer of what you can try. Hmm. Right? If the movie is for grown-ups, you may be able to make money in some niche way. If the movie's for kids, it's got to be right down the middle. Well, doesn't that do violence to our understanding of what a child actually is? Yes. I mean, of they're course. more nuanced than that. That's why I, th- I say that's a very cynical comment. I mean, maybe the average movie producer doesn't have an idea of the of the sensitivity of childhood or or maybe it's just too risky. If you t- you tell a story to children saying be whoever you want to be and give them the line that they're learning in school, it's, there's no risk. On the other hand, I think that it, that there are good examples, even thematically speaking, of kids' movies coming out still. I mean, I, I, maybe we're slipping in this area as producers of movies for kids, but I don't know that we've all completely forgotten about it. There are still some good ones. So Such it, as? It, well, I'm thinking, and I, I didn't love the musical elements of this film, but the thematic elements of Moana, the Disney film, or is it Pixar? I can't remember. That came out a few years back. Beautiful. Great story. Super well told. Dealt with with the dealt with the darker side of being a person and of struggle pretty well. So I don't know. It's not it, it's not gone altogether, but it certainly sounds like this is emblematic of a cultural shift. Well, it, it certainly exists. The cultural shift has been happening for some time, so I wouldn't be surprised if you're right. Yeah, no kidding. Emily, go ahead. It's totally true. I just wonder, so this film, The Tale of Despero, came out in 2008, and I think the 2000s were kind of a low point mm. where these ideas were concerned, mm. and if anything, I think we might actually be on our way out of them. Not, not that they're not still present, they 100% are. I keep seeing uh, an ad for this film called Bad Guys. <laughs> looks- I saw that horrible and it looks to be doing i mean who knows i could be completely surprised it could be you should never judge a movie based on its trailer but it looks to be doing something similar where evil is being softened right Mm. to an extent oh is this the wolf that is going after a granny's purse and he accidentally saves her yes Mm -hmm. yes and then he he turns over a new leaf because she pets him and tells him he's a good dog or something yep (laughs) funny super funny yes probably gonna watch it And there's, you know, there's some good things. Anyway, that's a different conversation. It could end up being a good film. Mm -hmm. But all that to say, it's not that it's not there. But I do think that we might have been done with some of those things Mm. as a culture and that we're coming out of it in some ways. Boy, I hope hope you're right. I hope that that's true. I'm filled with doubt. (laughs) So one thing I want to I want to suggest here also, and this is not singling anyone out, mom. But do you think that... Do you, because I hear it creeping in around the edges for you and have in most of our episodes on this topic so far, you sort of think that if the writing of the novel was really good, the film adaptation is going to, without question, fail to put it across. 
And so in and I think it's while it's valid to say that the mediums are different and that they major in different things, one of the great and beautiful powers of filmmaking is to take what was on the printed page and bring it to life before your very eyes in wonder, glory, and beauty. Yeah, but please don't tell an entirely different story. Don't just strip mine the story for characters and setting and then change everything and write your own story. I mean, if you're going to do that, just make up some new characters and tell your own dang story. Agreed. Absolutely. I agree with you 100% about whether this was a good film adaptation, but I'm just trying to subtly remind everybody that it's not a bad film adaptation because it's a film instead of Kate DeCamelo's novel. It's a bad film adaptation because the medium of film was poorly used well, in order to try and adapt the novel. In the right? same way that if someone wrote an offshoot story and said, this is the tale of Despero, we would be mad because it's yeah, not there the is same. That exactly. as well. They, they right. titled it the tale of Despero. And it's, See, that's not a like separate they issue. Were, it's not like they were subtly um, joining into a conversation with DeCamelo about the nature of goodness or, or virtue or it's not like what we talked about yesterday with Gawain and the green knight, you know, agreed. It's not like that yeah, at all. Whereas, they were just whereas lazy. Gowan, Gowan and, and the and green knight gets points, gets points for, for entering a conversation and standing alongside the author and dialoguing with them, right? They're contributing something positive they took while some still risks. remaining pretty faithful. Yeah. And it was, it was risky, but it was mm-hmm. intellectually honest. In this the way one took happened. no risks. This okay. one took no risks. Dad, go ahead. Well, the the um, the idea of a director standing in conversation with a great work of literature and offering his own work of art that is part of a conversation about that that work of literature's themes and take does a take on it that all of that stuff works perfectly with an adult audience. But w- but when the audience is children mm. and the producer and director say, "Behold, the tale of Despero, based on the novel by Kate Camelo." then there is an obligation given the audience to be more faithful, right? I think you might be right. Or maybe, or maybe the producer director need to say, Despero Tilling rides again, loosely based on the novel by Kate. Yeah, the loosely is really important there. Right. <laughs> right. So that the, right. so that the intended audience who is not aware yet, they haven't had teaching the classics for five years yet <laughs> <laughs> of the idea of standing wow. in conversation <laughs> in the great conversation with someone. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, that's fair. I hadn't thought about that dimension at all. The difference between adapting being possible for grownups and maybe not so possible for kids, unless you're willing to tell it straight. Yeah. Maybe not as possible. Maybe harder. I, I think you you could go so far as to say they were bearing false witness against DeCamelo's <laughs> oh, She has now officially <laughs> mounted hey, listen, the high I'm horse, usually, my friends. I'm usually the person that's going to come in and say, well, let's soften that a little bit. But I, I read the Wikipedia page plot summary of the film, and then I read the Wikipedia page plot summary of the novel, and they have almost nothing but names in common. It's yeah. really true. Too when I saw the movie, and we saw it when it first came out, because if you guys remember, when we read this story when you were young, it was, we were so into it. Like, mm-hmm. every one of you, I, I was reading it while dad was at work, and we were trying to just read a chapter at oh, we couldn't do that yeah. every day. Wouldn't let you. And we got to a certain point in the story, and it was like, nope, we're reading this whole story. And I think it was like chapter two, honestly. <laughs> It was like, we barely got into the story and it was like, no, we're canceling classes and we're going to sit here all day long and read. So grab yourself a little cup of tea or whatever it is. You can have your baba and we're just going to keep on reading. Yeah. 
You need a diaper? Too bad. We'll yeah. change it later. We read, we read all day long. And it was like one of those, it's still one of the best homeschool days on record. I, I look back at that and it was like, it's like, it's got soft focus all around it. And it was full of so, magic. You know? So these directors ought to have known better than to take aim. Yeah. Well, don't even start in on Kate. We <laughs> went and saw this movie after, I mean, it was shortly thereafter, just a couple, what, what was it, a year or two? I can't remember when the the story came out as opposed Ian, to the movie. A sophomore in high school with his baba. <laughs> Not Ian. No. It would have been Wait Charlie. would have been Charlie. He was the one. Anyway, um, yeah. We went to see the movie. Yeah. I lost just my train of thought. I'm just reliving it yeah. here. Sorry. sorry. I lost my train you were, you, I think you were yeah. going to give us a stirring, stirring recounting of you Shut in the theater yeah. trying not Losing to do this at marbles? the top of your lungs yeah. through the entire movie. No, I reject you. I reject you. I reject you. I reject you. This director yeah. ought to be drawn and cornered. I don't know. I left the theater saying... That movie bore no resemblance to the original story. That was not The Tale of Despero. That was some other movie. And, you know, just to get back to a comment you made about how it was really poor movie production, that's not true. The production value of the film was really high end. Like, they did, it was beautiful, artistic renderings. Voices uh, were great. Fantastic. Excuse me. Fantastic. Let me say that again. <laughs> fantastic voice talent. <laughs> The fact that you're struggling to articulate (laughs) what you said earlier, though, about it was that one of the things that it failed to do was communicate the sparkling visuals of Kate DeCamelo's descriptions. Well, it's true. And it's because words are magical. Right. And what we're trying to do when we make cinema is we're trying to take the magic of words and turn what is an an imaginative picture in your mind into a more tangible picture on the screen. And something about it. I Okay. I don't know if this is going to translate, but I'm going to try. I think that it's like Plato's idea of the platonic idea of chair. Okay. The, okay. The, the idea, the platonic so form. So chair idea. is in your mind, and real chair will never get to the chair. Exactly. In your mind. Exactly. The, you can make a million chairs in order to try to depict what's in your mind, but not one of those chairs is actually going to be as good as the chair in your mind, because the chair in your mind partakes of chairness, and all the chairs are contained within that one chair in your mind. That's fantastic. Right? But I as think she did it. As, as soon as rolling? you create Do the chair. We have this? Then you got people saying, yeah, but I don't like the arms on that chair. That's not the chair that was in my mind. Or I don't like the feet on that chair. Or I don't like the cushion or the fabric or whatever. I think that there is the nature of film, at least if we're talking about film that wasn't created to be filmed in the first place, like something that was written as a story and somebody's trying to put it on the screen. It's reductionistic necessarily reductionistic because it's taking something that's in the imagination, something abstract in your mind that's happening in there, that's magical and telling you what to see, right? You see this person, not the person you had in your mind. And and you hear this music, not whatever music was playing in your mind. And you see this rendering and it comes at you this way, not that way. And the camera angle is like this, not like that. You see, it's necessarily reductionistic because it takes of the general concept that the mind is is putting together and makes it very particular. Hmm. 
I think I see what you're saying, and it's a, it's a pretty good stab. I, I think mean, it's a good argument. She drew the Plato into is, it, and I don't know what you're going to do. The problem with that, though, is that when you're going to a novel, despite the fact that your experience partakes of novelness, the guy's experience standing next to you doesn't look anything like yours because his brain is completely unique and his imagination is different from yours, right? So one of the things that a novel does is stoke an individual vision out of everyone, which is a great thing to do. It's a great thing to do. It is not the only thing that art is for because novelization is only one of a dozen legendary genres pursued the world over for art. So I guess what I'm suggesting is that in approaching film as a genre of art, as a medium, we have to be just as careful to look at it by its own rules and appreciate it through the lens that it was that it takes up. So to speak, so to speak, <laughs> as we do when we're looking at a work of literature, Absolutely. and that's why I think this this conversation about adaptations is so much fun because if done properly, the imagination required to make a film version of a great novel is also magic. It's um, what is the name for the kind of poetry that is concrete poetry? No, no, <laughs> you don't even know what I'm about to say. Are you talking about <laughs> the poetic greeting card doggerel? No, that's we're not. all yes. wrong. Limericks. Uh, no, 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 you got to stop phrasing stuff as questions, man. Yeah, yeah, Get the floor, <laughs> take the floor, <laughs> hold the floor. Poor Emily. Poor Emily. Go ahead, Emily. <laughs> there, there is a Greek name for a form of poetry that is written as a response to a visual work of art. Oh yeah, and I, oh yeah, <laughs> I can't remember the name of it either. I can't remember the name of it. I just I wondered if it was ecstasis. It's not that, but it, it sounds something like that. And it is a genre, a genre of poetry that it's like uh, that poem about Ode to a Grecian Urn. <laughs> No, it's the one I'm thinking. The of. One, She's like, um, you're not in my head. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> the one about Icarus falling. Do you guys remember that? Oh, yeah, one? Yeah. oh yeah. Musée de Beaux Arts. Yeah, Musée de Beaux Arts. Oh, it's an awesome uh, poem. I think. It's it's a responsive poem to a work of art. It's a genre, and I think Ian, that that is kind of what you're talking about. That and there's a sense in which a film is uh, a or a film adaptation is by genre or can be a response to work of art which is in itself a valid work of art right I which think is why i would say that hold on mom this one's just, so bad yes in fact that was the sentence i started so you're <laughs> off the hook there <laughs> and to think you taught him not to interrupt when he was a small child <laughs> well you know unreal i, I kind of have to get my words in where i can hmm <laughs> the daughter-in-law goes huh. mm. um, no i agree with Do you, you that's what i was going to say is that is that in in it, with regard to emily's comment so far gowan and the green knight and then also little women right the, the latest little women adaptation they both partake of that particular use of film film as responsive poem right or responsive work of art this one doesn't. Ekphrastic. Ekphrastic. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No wonder okay. I couldn't think I've of it. I've heard that, that term before. I've never heard of that before. I want all of our listeners to know. If you've never heard of that before, you're with me. I've heard of it. I could never have drawn it out to save my life. Well, I think that's that might be kind of what we're approaching in our definition of good literary adaptations. for Saving the, mom's for life? The screen, right? No. <laughs> The ekphrastic, the idea of an ekphrastic poem being the, what we're talking about when we say this was a great movie made from a book. That's kind of what we mean. We mean 
I have seen, I have, I have digested, I've interacted with the point of this work of art. Mm-hmm. And now I'm responding with my own. And it can, it can take a lot of forms. It can be a straight across homage to the original. It can be a response to the original. What it can't be, and we will allow, we will literally let slip the dogs of Missy on you. What it can't be <laughs> is a revision. Right. Because a revision is, is, is bad news. It's bad reading. Right? Well, it's arrogant because yeah. it's taking the author's work into your own hands and basically saying, I will be as good as you and you did it wrong. Let's read Yeah, and it's also lying about what the real story That's was. That's it. If you're yeah. going to do that, just tell a different story, for goodness sake. Don't don't call it by the name of the first one. Why would you do that? Yeah, I agree with you. I, I love agree it. with you. I agree. Oh, I feel all purged. Yeah, yeah that was just <laughs> very cathartic. <laughs> that was a super cathartic experience. Cathartic. <laughs> Thank you all for your, your most jocular uh, interruptions of this conversation. This was so much fun. Mom, mm-hmm. thank you for coming loaded for bear. Oh, yeah. Thanks for helping me. I, I, yeah, it was it was great. I had a hard time finding my gun there at the beginning. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, your gun's never far. Never far. Never far. Needed thank you, listeners, <laughs> for joining us on this journey. We will be back again with another episode where we're going to take up, as Emily let slip in our last episode, we're going to take up one of our very favorite directors. And I dare say none of us will have a lot negative to bring to the table against Mr. Kenneth Branagh. Until then, my friends, go watch a great movie. We'll see you later. Happy reading, guys. Happy reading. Happy reading. Happy watching. Bye. Thank you for listening to Bibliophiles. We hope you enjoyed the show. Next week, we'll be talking about one particular director famous for his film adaptations of classic works of fiction, the great Kenneth Branagh. In the meantime, please find us on social media and tell us what you think about this season. And until next time, happy reading, everyone.